In the final segment of our program, oncologists from the Florida Cancer Specialist Group presented cases of RCC to Drs. Bukowski, Schuery, George, and Mozer, beginning with a patient of Dr. Scott Titro. This is a very nice guy, 74 years old, and he presented with a left neck lesion, which was actually a met to the trapezius, and biopsy showed clear cell kidney cancer. He has a primary in the left kidney, six centimeters. He felt well. He had multiple pulmonary nodules also. What was his symptomatic state at that point? Nothing, actually. Completely asymptomatic. Yeah, he was having a hard time believing that we had gotten everything correct because he felt so well. What's his life situation, work, family? He's retired now and plays golf, typical Sarasota retiree. Very active. So I guess one thing we can start out with, Dan, is the question of this recording tonight is part of an integrated curriculum on renal cell cancer that we're actually doing this whole year. We have three audio programs. Each one is a different kind of a format. We have a think tank that we just sent out. We have an interview program. We have this program here tonight. And we surveyed quite a few oncologists to try to figure out what to cover And we also did a patterns of care study about what people are doing in practice. And I'll bring that up tonight as we go through it. But Dan, interestingly, by far and away, the number one question the oncologist had was, what's the role of nephrectomy nowadays that we have the new drugs in a patient who's presenting with metastatic disease, particularly a patient like this who's asymptomatic? Do we really need to take the kidney out? How would you think through this situation and that question? It's a great question, Neil. It's one that comes up even more now than ever before. I think we're diagnosing a lot of renal cell carcinoma still incidentally or in cases where the burden of metastatic disease is relatively limited. And I think that's still sort of the opportunity to consider the debulking nephrectomy. The reality is is that data was generated in an earlier time when we didn't have these targeted therapies, and it did show a pretty substantial survival advantage, percentage-wise speaking, one of the most substantial survival advantages we've seen in renal cell carcinoma. And it's interesting, even with all the advances we've seen with the change in natural history and the progression-free survivals with targeted therapy, we don't necessarily see the same kind of overall survival advantage in these studies. So whenever we have overall survival advantage, you really have to look at that as a very important endpoint. And I think for that reason, we still consider this. We still consider debulking nephrectomy. I think a couple of other points is that we probably don't do as good a job shrinking primary disease with targeted therapy as we do metastatic disease. For sure, we still see responses, but not as dramatic. So if you believe in the philosophically and the biologic effect of debulking, surgery is still the optimal way to do that. So I would say that for the majority of patients that we would have considered in the past for debulking nephrectomy, we're still considering for debulking nephrectomy. Where we've gotten perhaps a little bit more selective are in the patients that have decreased performance status or the patients that have really kind of symptomatic or bulky metastatic disease. So you think you would maybe go in with a nephrectomy in this asymptomatic patient? I would. I would, because I would consider this patient otherwise a relatively good risk patient. He's got a good performance status. We haven't heard all the labs, but presumably if those are all within the normal range, this is somebody that we'd consider to be relatively low-volume metastatic disease. Although he's got a couple of sites of metastatic disease, he probably would be served reasonably well with a debulking nephrectomy and then a restaging to see what rate of progression he has of his metastasis. So, Ron, we actually presented a case just like this in our patterns of care study. 
and we had clear-cut consensus. We had 51% of oncologists said they would do a nephrectomy, and 49% said they would start systemic therapy. So this clearly is an area of controversy. What situations, if any, would you not do a nephrectomy? I find it interesting that oncologists find this an area of controversy because it's not the most common thing we see now. It used to be very common. It's much less common than it was 10 years ago this kind of presentation. So it probably just out there and people are wondering, well, should I follow the same paradigm we followed before or not? I think the answer is yes, that you should. I think there are clearly circumstances where you don't necessarily have to do a upfront nephrectomy if for some reason you want to treat the patient rapidly. If he's symptomatic from a site, then you feel that rapid resolution of tumor size is important. Small primaries respond. But you'll come to the point of having to remove the primary tumor if you're going to give this gentleman any kind of long-term survival. These tumors don't go away. They don't respond completely. About a third of them get smaller with targeted therapy, but it's not the rule. It's rather less common than we would like to see. So I think there are circumstances where you don't do it. Highly symptomatic patients, patients who are clearly have comorbid features that don't permit you to do nephrectomy. But nephrectomy is much different than it was 10 years ago. You can do it laparoscopically. It's a simple procedure now. It, even with large tumors, it can be done. So I think it's something to test. Probably not in the United States. We couldn't do the first one expeditiously. We probably could never do the second study. They can do it in Europe, and God bless them. The French are taking this on, and hopefully they'll give us an answer in 15 years. So, Bob, you were in our think tank, and we actually had a big war about this, and looks like we're going to have another one tonight, because I just come out of the ASCO meeting where your colleagues, Bob, at Memorial in colon cancer, had presented an amazing paper showing that out of, I think, 293 patients with colon rectal cancer, primary, asymptomatic, with metastatic disease, they didn't do surgery, and 90-some percent of these patients never required surgery. Why wouldn't that paradigm fit in renal cell? Well, I think that's a good question, Neil. I think the history in renal cancer has been to take out the kidney before there was any effective therapy. And then with cytokine therapy, two studies showing a survival benefit, so there's a track record for it in kidney cancer. And I think it's going to carry over into the targeted therapies. I'm an advocate of it. I think that the kidney primary in place can be problematic for these patients. They can have bleeding and so forth. I've had patients who are getting sinitinib, and they have problems with hematuria and clotting, and you don't know how much of it's related to the target of therapy versus just their disease. And the other thing is, is we're not curing the patients. So ultimately, a lot of these patients, if they progress and so forth, the kidney primary can be a source of morbidity and pain. So I think that it kind of remains the standard. Patient selection is important. Ron mentioned a couple scenarios where we don't do it. A couple others are, if it's a non-clear cell, we don't do a cytoreductive nephrectomy. If there's extensive adenopathy or surrounding the kidney, so if the kidney primary, but there's a lot of adenopathy around it, then we don't generally have the cytoreductive nephrectomy done because the idea is to remove all the disease and you don't want to resect through tumor. That's a bad thing. So I think it's important to make sure that we know which patients not to do it in as well. Why not non-clear cell? Well, I think that for the most part, that non-clear cell, there aren't effective treatments that we know of that change the course of the disease. So there's not an effective therapy afterwards to give after a debulking. Those tumors are often different. Very often, they're smaller primaries, extensive local adenopathy, so they're different kind of animal than the clear cells. So we'll just get Tony's view on this. Tony, suppose you're looking at the same exact patient, except the patient has very painful multiple bone mets. 
would that get you to hold off on nephrectomy? So this is a patient where perhaps you should start by systemic therapy, of course, after obtaining the biopsy, supposedly this is clear cell, renal cell carcinoma, where you can start by systemic therapy with agent like sunitinib, for example, and get a relief for this patient, hopefully symptomatic relief and shrinkage of his disease, and then discuss later at some point nephrectomy. So let's get to the key question that Scott has, if you can bring us up to date on this patient. Okay, we did not do a nephrectomy. He was offered a sutent pezopinib trial, and he elected to go on the trial and was randomized to pezopinib. And he has done well at the four-week CAT scan. He had a great response in all areas, less so in the primary. But his LFTs, now the ALT is... 9.50, and it came on very quickly. We really didn't get any warning of this. I just saw them yesterday, and we checked them again yesterday, and they're coming down. But I have questions about why that happens and what to do if it happens. He's very fatigued now, and it's hard to separate out whether that's the liver from the drug at the moment. So, Dan, where are we right now with pezopinib? What about the liver toxicity? What do you do about it? Well, I think it's a concern. Obviously, it required a separate ODAC meeting to specifically look at that toxicity, but it passed 11 to 0 in voting, a consensus view that this was a toxicity that was manageable, and specifically for patients with advanced renal cell carcinoma, where we really don't have a proven curative therapy for the vast majority of folks with expected survivals in the two-year range or so on average, that it's reasonable to treat with therapies that do pose some risk with this toxicity. The reality is is it's largely reversible by holding the drug if caught early. And this is what sounds like grade three now, LFT abnormality. So it is a serious adverse event. It's actually grade four. It's a grade four. And that's what bothers me. The liver seems to have a tipping point. And I was talking to Neil about the drug. I can see, let's say it's approved and I'm using this in practice. And I give somebody this drug and they go away on a cruise. This is not like hand foot where the patient yep. can say this is happening. And I think that's a legitimate concern. I think now that we have more therapies to treat patients with in renal cell carcinoma and the opportunity to sequence them through a number of therapies, we do get concerned with any one therapy posing a potential life-threatening risk or risk that may prohibit treatment with other therapies. So that may affect the order in which we treat patients. I would say that this is a relatively uncommon toxicity at this severity with this drug, but certainly one that's a concern. And I think that this phase three study that is really a worldwide study, but a dominant U.S. study, I think is an opportunity for us in the U.S. to really have a kind of firsthand experience with how significant this might be. The other kind of phase three study done with this agent was largely an ex-U.S. study. So I think this will be an important test in terms of its overall tolerance and how that's used in the community. Bob? I've had experience with the pizopna hepatic toxicity on the same trial, and I've had several patients the same thing. The reported incidence of a severe toxicity is between 8 and 10 percent, but when it happens, it's problematic for the patients. And the LFTs go up very rapidly. Usually you see it within the first cycle. The idea is to try and stop the drug, let recover, and reintroduce the agent. But it's been problematic in my hands as well in terms of that. What's happened in my instance of care for those patients is I wind up switching them over to sunitinib 
Would you likely do that in this patient, or would you, since he's responding, give it another shot? So no, what we'd do in this patient is follow him along and see if the LFTs recover, and if they do, retreat him at a reduced dose. But if they don't, over a couple weeks, then he should be switched to sinitinib. And what I found in my patients is during that interim, while you're waiting, they respond, but while you're waiting, sometimes the tumor starts growing again. So that's why I think you need to follow them, do a follow-up CT scan and that's what happens. That's pazopinib in a lot of other ways, though. What I'm seeing is that there's hepatic toxicity. It seems to be problematic. It'll, about one out of 10. The other nine out of 10 people, they feel very well on it. They don't have hand, foot, skin reaction. They don't have fatigue. So it seems to be very good for nine out of 10. For the person who's got hepatic toxicity, it's problematic. Tony, there's also another VEGFTKI exitinib that's being looked at, maybe that's going to become available. When you look across those four TKIs, sunitinib, serafinib, pazopinib, and axitinib, right now, what do we know about comparisons in terms of tolerability and efficacy? So I think there are two TKI at some point advanced that need to discuss. Excitinib is one, and efficacy of excitinib comes mainly from a phase two in cytokine refractory, showing high response rate with, at that point, the most impressive PFS of 15.7 months in cytokine refractory disease. And currently, excitinib is being explored in a randomized trial versus sorafenib, but as a second line after sunitinib failure and not as a front line. This is the same company that has sunitinib, has axitinib, Pfizer Pharmaceutical. And axitinib side effects seem to be comparable to sunitinib overall, perhaps with little more hypertension, however still being able to be managed by antihypertensive drugs. The other TKI is divazinib, AVF951, where a randomized trial essentially conducted completely outside the United States versus placebo showed a progression-free survival similar to sunitinib in a randomized discontinuation design. And side effect included mainly hypertension. And overall side effects were less than sunitinib and other drugs. And those are the main TKI that we have. What's going on is that they're not all being brought in the first line, some in the second line for different reason. And some are in development and some are almost done like pazopinib. Dan, what do we know about, I mean, I've heard people say pazopinib maybe is better, again, quality life point of view, tolerated. Obviously, we need the comparative study, but any thoughts, Dan, about whether that is going to play out for it to be you know, less problematic in terms of side effects? I think it'll be really interesting, not just how these are tolerated on the study, but how importantly, how we report that side effect on the study. If you just list the most severe episode of toxicity in every individual patient, you're going to come out with a percent of grade three fatigue or what have you at a certain rate. But what's probably more relevant, what you're hearing from people in the community more and more, is it's not so much a single episode of fatigue that's wearing people out. It's the rapidity. It's the duration of that fatigue. It's the fact that we're seeing it over and over and requiring a dose reduction, not necessarily for grade three fatigue, but for grade two fatigue over time. And I think it's one of the difficulties we have with how we report on our toxicities in comparing these drugs. What we're doing in the community is really changing the dose over time, not necessarily with that first cycle, although in some patients it is right at the start, 
with many other patients, it's a cumulative effect over several cycles. And I think that how we can capture that, any ways that we can demonstrate that toxicity over time will be really valuable in terms of the comparisons. Because otherwise, I think if you're looking at a drug that has grade 3 fatigue, but it goes away and it comes back, versus one that maybe is grade 1 or 2, but it's constant all the time, how do you judge those two things? In some patients, they may do better with an episodic pattern. Other people may do better with a lower degree of fatigue that's more constant. So I find it really challenging when we try to present this data in a way that you can compare these drugs and really put it into everyday practice. Ron, when we had the think tank group together, actually one of the things we were trying to do in the beginning, we spent some time just figuring out what should we focus on, what are important objectives to talk about. And Mike Atkins brought up an interesting question about the issue of observing people with metastatic disease off treatment. He felt like that wasn't used as much, and people should be aware there may be some patients where that can be done. This patient was asymptomatic. Are there any patients with metastatic disease which you would just observe? Yeah, I think our colleagues in practice do observe patients clearly. They'll watch patients with indolent disease if they feel comfortable with the growth pattern of their cancer. So I think it's done. I just don't think we recognize it as much. The problem you're asking about how you identify that group of individuals prospectively to know that you should observe them I don't think we have the answer to that. I think there are, to me, some fascinating data that have come out of Bob Mozer's studies with sunitinib as we look at these prognostic groups and look at the favorable group, this group with minimal symptoms and low tumor burdens. You see they have very long survivals. They had a long survival whether they received sunitinib or whether they received interferon. It's telling us something that we don't understand about this disease, that there's a subset in there who you can observe, who have very indolent, slow-growing disease, We're just not sure how to pick them out. You know, who should you treat initially? Who should you observe for six months to 12 months before you start treatment? Clearly, somebody with small volume pulmonary disease who's asymptomatic, 60 years old, you may choose to observe them for a while before initiating therapy, especially given the side effect profiles of the drugs we're talking about. So it's not clear, though, how we identify them at this point in time. I think we'll find that out as time goes on. But right now, we just I don't know how to do it. The next case was presented by Dr. Marcus Joppert. 76 years old gentleman, at age of 20, he underwent a left nephrectomy because of an obstruction that most likely was caused by a genetic defect. He also has a history of degenerative joint disease, hypertension, benign prostate hypertrophy, hypercholesteremia, and gout and diabetes. In 1996, he developed hematuria in an extensive workup identify a mass in his solitary right kidney. He underwent a right partial nephrectomy, and the tumor was removed with clear margins, but the margins were very close. The pathology was renal cell carcinoma, clear type, nuclear grade 2, and there was no capsule invasion on that specimen. So that was in 96. He, for the next five years, went fine. In 2001, he developed hematuria again, and a second right kidney mass was identified, and a second partial nephrectomy was performed. And the pathologist confirmed, again, renal cell carcinoma, but I don't have further details available from that pathology report. Wow. So that was in 2001, and he was doing fine until in 2004, a CT scan of the chest that was done without IV contrast to protect the remaining of his kidney. I identified some pulmonary nodules. And back then in 2004, the decision was made just to keep that under observation, and periodically CT scans were done, and eventually PET scans also were done, and they are described as cold nodules, but, you know, not much of a change from one CAT scan or PET scan to the next. But eventually in 2008, and then that's seven years after the second resection, 
and 11 or 12 years after the first resection, it was clear that the nodules would increase in size, and they start to have some FDG uptake in the PET-CT scan. Do you have any symptoms? No, no symptoms. Actually, he still to this day has no symptoms. Wow. Except the side effects that we are going to discuss in a second. So, Ron, I guess this is really a good example of what you're talking about. You know, in some patients, you can actually observe them. Yeah, he's a good example. I mean, this fellow was, what, eight years? Well, he's actually 96 to 2009. It's 13 years 13 from years. the first tumor. Well, but I mean from the determination of metastatic disease. The determination of metastatic disease, you know, was confirmed on a biopsy that was done in 2008. However, the CT scan was showing lung nodules for a while. So four those, years. And since they started to do PET scans, those were cold and eventually got hot. So in a sense, you can see that the progression of the disease is very slow, if that's the point that's trying to be made. What about, Ron, the time course of recurrence? Again, this patient had a delayed development or diagnosis of metastases. How often do you see that? I mean, I don't know that we have the frequency for you, Neil, to say, but this kind of a patient clearly is common. We all have them in our practices, and it also points up the futility of using PET scans in this disease. When nodules are small, they don't work. They don't give you an answer. So nodules less than 2 centimeters are very often negative, but they're still cancer. So that PET scans are not accurate in this disease in the pulmonary area. It doesn't mean that they're not cancer. It just means that it's not a positive PET scan. So this kind of patient we all have in our practices. I mean, I think 1% or 2% of them will see these very indolent, slow-growing patient situations. But you decide you want to treat them at that point? Well, in this case specifically, before that decision was made, a biopsy was actually done to confirm. And they did confirm that one of those lung nodules contained metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And subsequently, after the diagnosis was confirmed, he started on sutent at 50 milligrams PO daily, four weeks on, two weeks off. He developed as side effects, hand-foot syndrome, and some hypertension that took some work to control. And this patient is a painter. He's an artist. He lives part of the time in the Bahamas, part of the time in Florida. And the dose was subsequently decreased, eventually getting to a dose of 12.5 PO daily for four weeks on, two weeks off. Now, the patient being very smart and participative on his care and living on the Bahamas, he actually learned how to manipulate it a little bit to the dose. And in a sense, he manipulated those as the symptoms arise. And that's what he sort of settled on in terms of tolerating it? Correct. And on his last PET CT scan that was done about three months ago, by the time that I wrote this, all lung nodules have the same size since the year before, 2008. And one of the nodules has increased its FDG uptake. His most recent creatinine is 1.85, and that was in July when I wrote this. So, Tony, when I saw this, I guess the question in my mind was, how low can you really go with a drug like sunitinib to a point where maybe you're better off switching to something else? I mean, is 12.5 a dose that's reasonable in terms of looking for anti-tumor effect? I don't think so, personally, 12.5 or 25. Having said so, we have seen in practice people go down to 25 and still have side effects go down to 12.5, and their disease is controlled. Where am I coming from? Is from the study done by Pfizer, by Hook et al., looking at sunitinib dose in the blood and measuring the AUC, the area under the curve of sunitinib. And patients who had a high AUC more than the median are the patients that had a better response, better progression-free survival, and a better overall survival. Now, having said so, this is why in my practice I try as much as possible to keep the dose high, knowing that in many situations I'm not able to do so. So this is why 12.5 dosage, although 
in theory, yes, if you obtain several scans, it can happen. I'm not sure that's really an effective dose. Ron, what about other doses and schedules with sunitinib? We've heard about two weeks on, one week off, continuous, which is being looked at in a study. What would you consider reasonable outside of protocol setting right now in practice? Well, I think in practice, what we should do is what we've defined in this phase three trial, and that is four weeks on, two weeks off. You clearly will find situations where patients don't tolerate that, either dose or schedule, and you'll give an extra week or you'll come to a continuous schedule to try to control the disease. But I don't know that we're 100%, I know we're not positive that the continuous schedule at the lower dose is equivalent. I think I looked at the paper from Escudier that appeared in the JCO this past year, looking at side effect profiles. Now, we're comparing between trials, but to me, the side effects of 37 and a half continuous looks very much similar to the 4-2 schedule. It doesn't look a lot different. So although we say toxicity is different, we can't really document it. I don't think there is a better schedule. I think we're left with the 4-2 schedule with the other alternatives being 2-1 or continuous with lower doses dependent upon patient tolerance. And that's an individual thing where a patient is not tolerating the therapy well. You're trying to keep him on treatment as long as possible, and you're going to play with the dose and schedule. Bob, what would you think you might do in this situation? I mean, maybe you could even justify no therapy and maybe 12.5 is better than no therapy, another drug? What do you think you'd be doing? In the study, the lowest dose we went to was 25. So I would dose reduce the patient to 25, four weeks on, two weeks off, and he doesn't tolerate that. I would take the patient off and either follow them along or switch to something different. And often if they don't tolerate sunitinib, I go to serafinib. The target dose in blood is achievable with the 50 and it's achievable with the 37 and a half, but there's even a concern that going down to 25 is reaching therapeutic levels in the patients. So I think that 12 and a half is even a bar below that. And in this patient with slowly progressive disease or what have you, I would probably stop after 25, watch him. If you want to treat him, then I would use something different. Bill, why don't you present your patient? Okay, this is a 62-year-old white man who presented to his podiatrist in July 2002, seven-plus years ago, with pain in his right foot. MRI showed a 4.5-centimeter destructive mass involving the third metatarsal bone, and the podiatrist performed a biopsy which showed a clear cell carcinoma. At that point, he was referred to me, and we just did routine CAT scans, which showed a 7-centimeter left renal mass. He underwent on the same day a radical resection of the right foot, described as a ray amputation, and a left-hand-assisted left radical nephrectomy. He had a positive margin on the foot and received postoperative radiation to the left foot. In February of 05, a few years later, he was found to have a left adrenal mass on the same side and underwent a left adrenalectomy. Later that year, in December of 05, he was found to have disease in the contralateral right adrenal, underwent a right adrenalectomy laparoscopically with negative margins. The surgeon, because the tumor was stuck to the liver, referred him for postoperative radiation therapy to the tumor bed. This was completed in March of 2006. From then on, he also required replacement therapy for adrenal cortical insufficiency. He remained without any further disease and no systemic therapy until January 2008, a year and two-thirds ago, when he developed a right frontal scalp mass. It almost looked like he was growing a horn. He had a 3.1-centimeter frontal bone metastasis with no other sites of disease, and he was treated with radiation therapy. His disease progressed, and at some point there were some very small, uncertain lung nodules. So in April 2008, he was enrolled on a clinical trial 
which was a phase two trial of bevacizumab and RAD001, subsequently approved, which is commercially known as Affinitor. Due to mucositis, although he tolerated the bevacizumab well, he required a reduction of the RAD001 from 10 to 5 milligrams, although he did have an impressive reduction in the scalp mass. The RAD001 was later discontinued due to mucositis as per the clinical trial, and he remained on bevacizumab alone. In May of this year, he developed progression in the scalp mass, again, just a few small lung nodules, and after a four-week washout, he began sutent in June of this year. He's basically had some evidence of a reduction in the scalp mass. His lung nodules have remained stable, and he continues on sutent, although he has required some dosage reductions. He works for the Cape Carl Water Management District and has continued to work throughout the course of his disease. So, Ron, we have a lot of questions we receive about the issue of combination biologic therapy. Obviously, this trial is looking at that question with bevacizumab and the mTOR inhibitor everolimus. What do we know about that? What are some of the combinations that have been studied? What are some of the problems that have been run into in combination therapy? So this was a phase two trial, right? This was yes. one of the early... There was no randomization. Studies. Yeah, no randomization. So we've been tinkering with combinations of target agents in renal cancer ever since we had the availability of serafinib. Combining with bevacizumab, we've combined Bev with most drugs. I think what we know is that we can't really demonstrate a serious effect. We've not been able to have any level one evidence demonstrating that a combination is any better than anything else except for BEV plus interferon, where we clearly have an effect on progression-free survival. So the combinations remain investigational, as this one was. And this combination of uh, VEGF inhibitor and an mTOR inhibitor, quite reasonable. I mean, it now forms the basis of a phase three trial comparing BEV plus everolimus to BEV plus interferon, and it's an ongoing study. So I think combination work is important. We all do it in this particular setting. We hope we would see a maximizing of benefit, and that is an increase in response rate measured either by number of CRs or the duration of PFS. I don't think we've seen that as yet. What we have seen is introduction of more side effects, unfortunately, and lowering of doses of the primary drugs. And I think that's really exemplified by Bob's publication with sunitinib and bevacizumab, where he saw some very serious toxicities with the combination. Can you talk about that, Bob, what you did see? That was a study we did where we combined bevacizumab at full dose with escalating doses of sunitinib, and we got up to full doses of both drugs And what we found is that the patients tolerated the two together for a short period of time, although with hypertension as the main side effect. But over time, they didn't tolerate it, and the hypertension was a particular problem, and some of the patients developed an insidious toxicity of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. And that was dangerous, and a couple of patients had severe consequences. It makes the point that, as Ron mentioned, that with regards to combinations, they experience that I've had, at least with the TKIs, is that you can treat people with both, but they don't tolerate it for long periods of time, and you wind up dose-reducing. And it's not clear. I think the feeling is is that you probably get more long-term benefit and better safety to the patient by sequential use, A followed by B, rather than A plus B. And with that being said, the combinations that have been reported to be given at full dose and safe are BEV and Everolimus and BEV plus Temsorolimus, and those are two combinations that are in randomized trials. So this patient and the previous patient both received Everolimus and mTOR inhibitor. And Tony, one of the things that we found that I was surprised at actually in our survey was that when we asked the oncologist which of these side effects or complications are associated with mTOR inhibitors, only 60% of the oncologists, this is very unusual, 
I found in terms of our surveys, only 60% were aware of the non-infectious pneumonitis or the hyperglycemia and the hyperlipidemia. Can you talk about what we know about the complications and side effects of these agents and how you monitor for them? So definitely with mTOR inhibitors, the currently two approved for metastatic renal cell carcinoma, temsirolimus, everolimus, both serolimus analogs, so very similar drugs. Side effects include, in addition to fatigue, nausea, some GI disturbances, mucositis, mouth sore, but there are three distinct side effects and lab abnormalities that could become problematic. One is hyperlipidemia, both hypercholesterolemia and hypertriglyceridemia. So I do check on my patient at baseline and sometimes with every other cycle. Hyperglycemia could become problematic, especially in diabetes patient uncontrolled. And the third side effect is in pneumonitis. And we knew that from the data with serolimus. As you know, this is an immunosuppressant used in organ transplantation. And with both stem serolimus and with everolimus, we can see non-infectious pneumonitis. It's an inflammation in the lungs and both lungs that is mainly detected on chest x-rays or CT of the chest and could become symptomatic with presentation with shortness of breath and fever. I think with everolimus, it had been looked at more specifically. And from Dr. Mozer record one trial, the overall incidence is 15%. Although I've been hearing that it's sometimes more than that. And this is problematic because if you just have some infiltration on your CAT scans and the patient is not symptomatic, you continue. But on the other hand, if you have severe infiltration with shortness of breath and fever, you stop. But there is this situation that is probably the most common where you see infiltration and the patient has pulmonary nodules and has some fatigue and reports some shortness of breath and you don't know if these are related. And that's a very, very common scenario. And those are the patients I follow very carefully. I bring them more frequently to clinic. I may not wait for the CT scan for another eight weeks or 10 weeks. I may repeat it sometimes every two weeks, and I ask them to call me frequently. So these need to be recognized. Three distinct side effects, hyperlipidemia, hyperglycemia, and non-infectious pneumonitis. Most of the time, it is reversible. Sometimes if it is severe and symptomatic, you need to use steroids. And now after that, there are some guidelines being developed, but most of us go down on the dose from 10 milligram to 5 milligram for everolimus. We cut down on the dose. Dan, how interchangeable are these two mTOR inhibitors? If a patient really prefers to have an oral agent, can you use everolimus and vice versa? Are these like AIs or we really don't know? You know, I don't think we really know, Neil, at this point in time. You know, when you look at the pharmacologically, these drugs are very related. They really offer the same backbone, and their mechanism of action as what we term rapalogs, and that is to say that they are derived off of the same parent drug, rapamycin, and work primarily not to specifically inhibit mTOR, but really more to sequester it, to bind it to its chaperone protein in a non-reversible form that prevents its activation. So it's different than, say, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that specifically inhibits the activation. It's kind of blocking it in a stoichiometric way and ultimately very similar then in mechanism between these drugs, but different in terms of pharmacokinetics, one being dosed daily, the other one being dosed as a bolus IV. Now, over time, tissue penetration, these may work out to be fairly similar even in their kinetics, but from a toxicity standpoint, particularly when you're talking about other tissues being affected in the tumor tissue, 
that difference between bolus and daily dosing may matter. We just don't know at this point in time through head-to-head studies if there is any significant difference on a patient basis. I think Bill brought an excellent case. To me, this is what gets me excited about kidney cancer. This is a fascinating case of kidney cancer. This patient presented with a big toe lesion. I mean, if you just think about that for a minute, this kidney cancer had to travel hematogenously throughout the body and to land in the big toe and to cause a lytic problem, a large three-centimeter lesion there. That's a pretty remarkable biology when you think about it. Now, whether there was inflammation in there or something that sort of gravitated the tumor to land there, who knows? But you just follow this natural history over time. This patient has that resected, has their kidney taken out, and then, what is it, three years later presents with this adrenal mass, has that treated, and then goes another three years. So the question about today, if we had this patient presenting, would we be waiting three years like this in between therapies and doing these kinds of resections? Or was that only because it was in the era when we didn't have other therapies to offer that we were willing to be this judicious? And I think it really speaks to what is the natural history of this disease. To me, when you see unusual sites of presentation, so not your typical lymph node, lots of lung nodules disease, but weird sites, the trapezius muscle, the big toe, the scalp, the pancreas we see sometimes with lesions. These 10, when they're the only sites of metastatic disease, tend to portend a good risk scenario. Because we talked earlier, what is good risk renal cell carcinoma? And my colleague here, Ron, said he doesn't know in this era. But I think that's one of the things. Time really is a good indicator of good risk disease, someone that takes a long time to present. And then the other to me is these weird presentations. These, more often than not, tend to have a slower, indolent disease pattern. How many other solid tumors present in the big toe? <laughs> I had a renal cell. You had a what? Non-small cell lung cancer. Yeah, but it's rare, though. It, it yeah. is pretty rare. I think you see more unusual presentations of metastases in renal cell than in some other tumors. It's you know. pretty rare to present the big toe as a renal cell carcinoma. It is. No, I've I, seen I, one I, in 30 years. I, so I, I consider that rare. Only kidney cancer, yeah. To be fair, this was the metatarsal you. bone. He had his middle toe amputated. It was the, really the metatarsals where yeah. the metastases wow. And also, you talk about weird and what you think about when you think of renal cell. I don't think we're going to have time to go through your whole case, Bill, but you know, Bill's got a case that we were going to talk about of what you feel is spontaneous regression, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. correct. I mean, how often do we see that, Tony? Well, this is a very good thing, and I think it's still there in the community and in many academic centers, this myth of spontaneous regression. So this has been observed, especially with the absence of kidney cancer therapies and after nephrectomy. It has been described, and it has been described with pulmonary, bone, liver metastases. There has been several databases looked at it, more than 1,000 patients, and the incidence is less than 1%. But it could be more than we think. I can recall one phase three trial that originally was published in the New England Journal of Medicine by a urologic group from Canada. 200 patients were randomized to interfere on gamma or placebo. Then a study was published after looking just at the placebo group, and there was six patients out of 100 that were independently reviewed, and they had responses. So three partial response. They didn't have CT scans. It was Canada. They weren't using standardized CT scans at that point in time. That's one of the criticisms of that particular placebo group. We didn't do CTs. Therefore, the spontaneous regressions were based on chest X-rays. 
But these were confirmed. They said that they confirmed on them in an independent on, on chest, chest X-ray. X-ray. But there that's is Dr. Gleave, your good friend. That's correct. But even in the sorafenib randomized discontinuation trial and in the placebo control trial, the placebo group, there were patients randomized to placebo where their best response, two percent. PR and others with disease stabilization and tumor shrinkage. So, so this can happen. It's probably not durable. Have you seen it in your own practice, Tony? My own practice, you know, can be compared to well, the big Dr. Next. B's. I mean, but I have seen patient after nephrectomy that had pulmonary metastasis where I wanted to start therapy. I did another CT. So there's a fellow in England by the name of Tim Oliver. Tim was at one of the British hospitals, and he made a career looking for spontaneous regression of renal cell cancers. He saw them in two circumstances, once where the primary was removed, or more commonly, where he would be observing the patients over a period of time and get repetitive scans and see changes in size. And Tim was quite willing to call a decrease in size a spontaneous regression. And he cataloged a series of about 30 or 35 patients in which this occurred. So Have you had it any does your practice? Happen. I've seen that, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it yeah, occurs. Too. Bob, sure. you too? A couple of patients. For the most part, it's stable disease, and then occasionally you see people with spontaneous regressions. And I've had patients who have progressed through therapy and who we felt was going to pass, and then they've actually developed spontaneous Remember, regression. This, Not many, but a few. Right. Yeah. This phenomenon yeah. is what really interested us in yeah. the disease many, many years ago. We thought for certain we were missing something immunologic here that would lead us to a way to treat the disease, because when you saw it, it was very dramatic. It was very common. It seldom occurred, but we could never find the biology behind it. We could never demonstrate what was happening in those patients where it was found. So, Dr. Raymond, can you present your patient? Certainly. This is a 73-year-old gentleman that presented with gross hematuria. He initially was found to have a urinary tract infection placed on urinary catheter drainage and then underwent CT scanning. The pelvis was unremarkable, however. He was found to have uh, left renal uh, large mass, well, 6.9 by 6.5 by 8 centimeters, he also had a left periodic node outside of the kidney, three centimeters in size. There was other less bulky lymphadenopathy, some of the aortic bifurcation, 3.2 centimeters maximal tumor diameter, superior mesenteric lymph node, 1.5 centimeters in diameter. Bone scan was negative for metastasis. However, CT scan of the chest showed two masses, one 1.3 centimeters maximal diameter, the other 0.6. CT scan guide a biopsy of a left lung lesion. Not on the case. I can't give you the justification for that. However, that did show non-small cell carcinoma suggesting a renal origin. So he was felt to have metastatic disease. But because of his persistent gross hematuria, he did undergo uh, nephrectomy. He had a 9-centimeter tumor with clear cell histology. However, there were areas of sarcomatoid features. The renal vein margin was involved with tumor. Lymphatic invasion was noted in the renal specimen, and seven lymph nodes were removed in the specimen, all of which contained metastatic disease. Following surgical recovery, he consented to and was initiated on our trial comparing sunitinib to pizopinib. At this point, he was randomized to receive pizopinib. He has been on that with the chief toxicity of fatigue. His initial restaging scans did show stable disease, and he continues on study. Anything else besides fatigue? Nothing major, just some other minor problems, but that's maximal grade 3, regressed to grade 2, no deterioration of performance status. LFTs are okay? Yes, he did not have any. I'm unfamiliar with this kind of liver function abnormality. I was 
kind of surprised because my patient's doing fine. So, Dan, this man sounds like he had a pretty extensive local disease. How far can you go in resecting a primary tumor? And another common question we get, of course, this is coming because of we see this done in a lot of other tumors, is neoadjuvant therapy in an attempt to convert someone to resectability. How much surgery can you do in a primary tumor like this really extensive one? Yeah. And again, it's very difficult to generalize in something like this. I mean, more often now than ever before, we're having our renal cell carcinoma patients presented at our tumor boards with our surgeons and ourselves there to really discuss these issues. And how do you sequence surgery in with some of the other systemic therapies? Most of the time, if we're going to do surgery, we like to do that up front. The likelihood of having a dramatic regression here with a systemic tyrosine kinase inhibitor that really will affect the ultimate surgical outcome is pretty low. So in these patients that have fairly bulky disease and maybe relatively limited distant metastatic disease that we're going to consider a nephrectomy in, we'd like to do that up front. The question comes up, how aggressive are you with the lymph nodes? How far do you go? And I think there we're really treading a little bit more on thin ice because it's not the data is much weaker in terms of trying to debulk that kind of regional disease. So what I usually tell our surgeons is if there are regional nodes that can come out easy enough and not necessarily risk the recovery or complications, fine. If these are matted down nodes up against vasculature, we don't need to touch them. And they're usually pretty good about drawing those lines. And this case was a fairly easy on-block resection. There was no retroperitoneal lymphadenectomy type dissection right. going on. This was kidney plus garotis fascia. And in order to get just the thing cleanly out with a cancer-type operation, it all yeah. came out. And it's palliative, too. I mean, he's having gross hematuria that could be complicated down the road with your other therapies. You know, it's already invasive into your urinary system. It's likely to get worse in the future. So I think there's immediate as well as potential overall survival advantages to debulking in a case like this. He tolerated the surgery okay? Oh, yes. He came through fine. He was back to his normal activities. He was not a golfer, unlike most of the other (laughs) cases. But he really had minimal postoperative pain and initiated the treatment as soon as he could by protocol criteria. So, Ron, what does the sarcomatoid feature of this mean, if anything? And what about non-clear cell cancer? Fortunately, it wasn't non-clear cell cancer. It was clear cell cancer. because Yes, it was. If it were non-clear cell, we really wouldn't have a real good clue here as what to do, as was mentioned previously by Dr. Mozer. I think we're all looking at non-clear cell variants, but we don't have the answers yet. And the sarcomatoid differentiation can occur in either clear cell or non-clear cell. It really just means a poorly differentiated cancer. It's not a specific term. There clearly are soft tissue sarcomas that occur in the kidney. That's not this particular kind of cancer. It's more reflective of a patient who's probably going to do poorly. Now, the question we've often asked is sarcomatoid differentiation, a variable that influences outcome in the patient with advanced disease. In other words, sarcomatoid patterns. And the answer is probably yes. I think it probably does in the long term. The data is not necessarily satisfying because sarcomatoid can mean 10%, 20%, 50% of the tumor. So it's not clear. But I think in the long term, it does influence that. In the tumor board presentation of this gentleman, it was a very minor portion. There are minor you portion. Know, vast areas of typical clear cell with a few foci of sarcomatoid So when, when we had fellows like Tony at the Cleveland Clinic, we had one of them look at sarcomatoid tumors to try to get a sense. And it wasn't him. It was actually a pathologist who tried to catalog about 60 of these and determine what the percentage of sarcomatoid elements was in a tumor. And he came up with a way to do that, going from 5% up to 90% of the tumors. And clearly, the tumors that had 
what you describe as very little sarcomatoid element in them were the ones that did the best. They were the ones that were responsive to the kinase inhibitors, whereas when these tumors were almost entirely sarcomatoid or poorly differentiated, they did quite poorly as reflected by the short progression-free survival. So clearly, it's an important component of the entire spectrum of their illness. So sarcomatoid tumors, especially when they're a very great part of the tumor, just these don't do well. Any other questions, cases? I have a couple of patients on sutant, and what is the best way to manage the hypertension? Seems to be a challenge. Was the patient hypertensive before therapy? No. And how old is the patient? When he's 42, and every time on a four weeks on, the blood pressure can go from 180, 190 systolic. Then when he's off, it comes back to normal, and it's very sporadic and just very difficult to manage. So, Bob, what about that? And, I mean, if you treat the patient based on the blood pressure during treatment, can you make them hypotensive off? It's common occurrence. What we see is that the patients start, when they come in for their day 28 evaluation, the blood pressure is up, and then it goes down to two weeks off. So what we normally do is have the patient take their blood pressure at home with a cuff and then start antihypertensives, and oftentimes they have to learn how to change the dose of their antihypertensive during the two weeks off. So, for example, the medication we use commonly is Norvasc, since it doesn't interact with sinitinib at all. And so they may be on 10 milligrams of Norvasc during the first 28 days, and the two weeks off they take five, and then 10 and five, and that's been one of the challenges with sinitinib with the intermittent schedule, but patients have to manage it by altering their antihypertensives. Normally it's taken both during the four weeks on and then one during the two weeks off, but you have to come up with a schedule for that. That's a very common problem, and patients can drop their blood pressure quite low during the two weeks off if you don't modify the antihypertensives. There's been a lot of debate, Dan, about the question of hypertension and benefit, not just with sunitinib, but even bevacizumab. What do we know in renal cell cancer? Do patients who get hypertension do better in terms of the tumor? Well, I mean, if you think of the etiology of hypertension in terms of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors or the neutralizing antibody to VEGF, These are largely what I would term on-target effects. This is a side effect that's directly related to the target we're trying to block, the VEGF receptor or the ligand. And so, incidentally, the mechanism of that is we think we're increasing systemic vascular resistance. We're tightening up the normal vasculature by decreasing the permeability of the peripheral vasculature or the normal vasculature, not just the tumor vasculature. Now, whether or not that's a real surrogate or biomarker, if you will, for a treatment effect is variable. And I think part of the problem is there's so many factors that can influence blood pressure. And we think of hypertension as blood pressure is greater than 140 over 90. But if you take somebody from 110 over 60 and bring them up to 130 over 70, that's a pretty significant increase in baseline resting blood pressure. And yet that wouldn't be captured in our definition of hypertension. So it's really modulation of blood pressure more than kind of true hypertension that we may find is the best definition. But whatever it turns out to be, I think it's likely to have some correlation because of its relationship to the target effect. Now, at the same time, I mean, we want to be careful with it. We have to get it under control, especially in a chronic setting. These can increase risk of other complications. So I I agree with Bob. We try to get these down, and frequently it takes multiple drugs to do so. And targeting drugs that decrease the systemic vascular resistance, like calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, 
beta blockers to decrease afterload. These are all good medicines for this mechanism of hypertension. And, and I would consider this like a secondary hypertension. This is not essential hypertension. This is a secondary cause. So using agents that specifically target that mechanism makes sense to me. So I think all in all, trying to help the patient understand that and modulate and manage their own blood pressure, just like they would their blood sugars for diabetes or what have you, I think is absolutely doable, and it just takes some extra education. And usually this happens up front, so it's something you, know, you want to bring up with people very early on. Any other questions or cases? Just real quick, in the case that Bill Harwin presented, there were, I think, three different times when this patient was surgically NED. Would any of the panelists consider adding sidentinib or another drug at any point along the way? And just to add on to that, what about just adjuvant situation? Would you, in any situations, consider off-protocol therapy? We'll go to Ron. No, I wouldn't, but if I was in Japan, the answer would be yes, I would. The Japanese do this routinely. They give interferon following removal of metastatic disease, and they maintain that their results are far superior to ours in that setting because of the fact that they give interferon continuously in that setting. I've never thought that was the correct thing to do, but they maintain it is. With sunitinib or whatever kinase inhibitor, we just don't have the data right now. They're not pleasant drugs. They're not easy to give. If I'm not certain that I'm going to have a beneficial effect, I'm a little bit more hesitant to introduce that kind of therapy in this setting. So is the story fully told? No, because it may well be that chronic therapy, the Japanese may be right. Sometimes they are. We'll have to wait and see. Sometimes? Sometimes. (laughs) Tony, what about off-protocol adjuvant therapy? Obviously, there are trials. I think you're all involved with the serafinib trials. I think you are, right? There are trials are out there. How about the patient who says, hey, well, you know, how about give me the treatment off-study? I haven't outside the clinical trials, and I think for a good reason. First, we don't have any evidence. Second, there isn't any hint of activities with any other smaller study or in the era of cytokine or others that adjuvant therapy matters. Third, we don't know for how long we're going to give it. And fourth, there are side effects that can happen, and some of them are a serious adverse event, knowing that sometimes patient is cured with surgery. So I haven't been doing that, and even after resection of metastatic disease with complete resection, I do not do it. This was another area in our survey where we saw a discrepancy between the researchers and the docs in practice, and that the researchers virtually all did what Tony just said, but I think it was 29% of the docs when we presented a higher-risk adjuvant situation would offer a patient off-study treatment. I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, they did it with the cytokine, did it with interferon, so there's no reason they wouldn't do it with these new drugs, and so it's a natural sequence of events. Any other questions or cases? In breast cancer, we know that the disease-free interval between primary therapy and metastasis oftentimes will predict the aggressiveness of the disease. In Dr. Harwin's case, there was quite a duration between the presentation of the primary tumor and the first metastasis. My own personal experience was a woman who presented 12 years post-nephrectomy with diffuse miliary pulmonary and bone disease. This was in the no-treatment era, and she lived a good PS for two and a half years before finally succumbing to her disease. Is this a common observation among the panelists? Bob? The length from diagnosis to development of metastasis is clearly a prognostic factor. When we look at different prognostic factors, that one comes out independently. It's considered one of the primary ones in the model that was developed at Ron's center and my center. And so, yes, that's an important thing. I think it reflects the underlying biology of the disease and whether it's more indolent or aggressive. 
And Bob, can you just clarify, because I think this is sometimes misconstrued, and in your models, it's the time from diagnosis to treatment, not necessarily time from right. diagnosis right. to metastasis, because in these cases that have these tiny indeterminate pulmonary lesions that may take three years to declare themselves, you could go back and say, well, they were metastatic from the beginning, but they right. didn't actually require yeah. treatment or necessitate that for several years. Yeah, we used time from diagnosis. It was actually from all patients on trials. So it was time from diagnosis to start in the trial. And the reason for that, it was good, clean endpoint where we couldn't really go back and look and say, well, you develop metastasis here or there. So that's why that is the endpoint. But the concept is pretty much the same.